Hello, I'm Meg Walker and welcome to My Kind of People. Join me as I speak to leaders and community members across the world who all share a passion for positive change. Each week we'll explore the power of community, leadership, passion and positivity and the beauty that can be created when these values come together. Each guest has been a big inspiration to me and I'm grateful to call them my kind of people. I hope they'll be yours too. I'm so excited for us all to connect really soon, but until then, I'm sending big love, good vibes and positive energy. Who are your kind of people? Welcome to my kind of people. In this episode, I'm excited to introduce you all to Colin Bevan, who has so many wonderful titles. He is a writer, speaker, consultant, coach and activist who continuously works to help people all over the world work and live with balance, purpose and impact. During this episode we will get to know more about Colin and his impactful work. I greatly admire how much positive content Colin puts out into the world and how he addresses social change with a balanced and mindful approach. I'm so grateful to welcome him into my community. He's definitely my kind of person and if you don't already know of Colin and his inspiring work then I know he will soon be your kind of person too. Welcome to the podcast Colin Bevan. Thanks Meg, it's nice to be here with you. Nice introduction too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Trying to butter me up. (laughs) I am. I think you're probably the first guest to cotton on so quickly. (laughs) I'm going to have to be careful. In all seriousness, thank you so much for your time and energy today. I really appreciate it. Since first reading your book, No Impact Man, a few years ago, it really has encouraged me to continue on my own journey to live more sustainably. And it's also made me think further about how I want to show up in the world and serve others. Your work really makes me hopeful about the future and what we can achieve as individuals as well as part of a community. But before we learn more about your work, Colin, I would love for the community to learn a little bit more about you as a person. So where have you grown and flown? Where did you grow up and where would you consider home now? Hmm. Well, I was actually born in Manhattan in New York City. But I would live there till I was eight, till my parents split up. And then when they split, my sister and I moved with my mother to a little countryside town called Westport, Massachusetts. It's just south of a peninsula on the East Coast called Cape Cod, which many people have heard of. It's a beach town and an agricultural town. Yeah, it was a little bit of a lonely place to grow up, but it was also a kind of a cool place because there were woods to explore and a beach to be at. Yeah. It was just a great place. Mm, That's lovely. And where in that journey did you start to develop your passion for living a more impactful life? Has that always been a main focus for you? Well, first of all, I've always had some sort of a spiritual yearning growing up. Mm. You know, the big questions were, you know, I don't know if you you remember or had this, but I remember being little and trying to consider, they would say that the universe was infinite in Mm. size. And I would try to consider that and wonder what that meant. And it would literally, almost literally hurt to think about. Like I would try to think about it and I would have to stop. So I had like lots of questions always about that kind of stuff. And and when I was young, I dabbled in 
psychism and all that kind of stuff. So, so I had this kind of spiritual thirst or quest. That was one element. Then, you know, the research shows that people who support doing things about climate change overwhelmingly grew up in the countryside. And that's because people who live in the countryside are more likely to have an intuitive understanding of our connection to nature. They're, you know, urban kids, for example, might not even understand that a strawberry grows on a bush. Mm. You know? So growing up in the countryside informs a lot of environmentalists or having a connection to the countryside, certainly does for me. And I was very close to my grandparents. I saw them nearly every day, my mother's parents. And they were depression era, you know, the, the ones that would save the paper, uh, the paper shopping bag from the grocery store and save the newspapers and save everything for some sort of reuse, you know. And my grandfather was on the conservation society thing. So there was that. And then the last thing is that I've been part of the 12 step recovery movement for a really long time. And really the central tenet, uh, in my view of the 12 step recovery movement is that you have to give it away to keep it. That means, mm. you know, when you're in trouble, <laughs> the the way to get out of that trouble, especially emotional or psychological trouble, the way to get out of that trouble is to look for ways to serve others. So these ideas of growing in the countryside, having a spiritual yearning anyway, uh, being part of a movement of people that believe that, you know, the only way to help yourself is to help others. All of those things were philosophies and ways of being that informed my work moving forward. Mm, I'd never heard about that study before regarding people being more intuitive to nature if they live in the countryside. But that actually makes a lot of sense that you would have a more innate connection to nature because of it. And what do you think it means to live an impactful life? And how do you think a more sustainable mindset can improve the way we show up in the world? What it means to live an impactful life, is that's an interesting question because I think the answer, the answer depends on who you are. It's a different, mm -hmm. it's definitely an answer that I can't tell you how to be impactful, right? Or anybody else how to be impactful. I can encourage you to choose to quest to be impactful, but I can't tell you how. I think maybe I should just backtrack a little just to say, so those people who don't know, no impact man, what it's about, because it will give some context. So no impact man, I had written two books mm -hmm. prior to no impact man, they were both history books They were great. I, you know, I loved writing them and readers liked them. And they kind of made me squarely part of the New York literary scene and all of that. But it was shortly after the Iraq and Afghanistan wars had started, and there was news of climate change. And I was just like, I can't keep just making history books like the world's falling apart. So how can I take my talents and my skills and the things that I'm passionate about doing and turn them in a way that helps the world? Mm. And I came up with this idea that I would write, you know, a book about climate change and how all you people are driving <laughs> SUVs and you're wrecking the world. And people just said, geez, yeah, that's all true. But what a downer. Who's going to want to read that? And so then I came up with this idea. Well, wait, what if I just experimenting with living with as little environmental impact as possible, along with my then wife and my daughter in the middle of New York City. And I don't mean we recycled more. It was like extreme. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't use electricity for six months, for example. And that was no impact, man. It was really a question. Really, it, it was in one way, it was about how does an individual live environmentally? But in another way, it was about what's the purpose of life, actually? Mm -hmm. Because Life itself is a resource, you know, so it was about the effective use of resources 
and including life. So your question was, how do we make an impact and what does that mean? What did it mean to live sustainably and how do the two connect? So if you choose to live sustainably, that means that you're not wasting resources. You're, mm -hmm. in fact, to me, a, a definition of living sustainably is to use resources only in ways that improve your life and the lives of others, right? So I call that eco-effectiveness. It's eco-effective to use resources. In our world, right, we get on this treadmill where we go to work and do jobs we don't really like, and the payoff is that we get some money, and the only thing we have time to enjoy is the computer, the television, and going shopping, or now online shopping because of COVID, right? So we buy a bunch of stuff kind of as a consolation prize, not because we really, the stuff makes us happy. It's just like, it's the only degree of freedom we have. Well, I could get another power drill, or, you know, <laughs> I could get another handbag, or I could get another coat, and then we get it, and we'd be like, great, I've got this coat, but then we're not really happy, so we go to earn more money to try to buy, buy another thing that might give us happiness, which doesn't, right? That is not eco-effective use of resources. That's wasteful resource use because it doesn't actually make us or the planet or anybody happier, right? Sometimes people say that environmentalists are a downer. They're like, you environmentalists, you think we human beings should just kill ourselves so that we don't cause an impact. I, I'm not like that. I just don't think we should make an impact that actually makes us unhappy. Mm. So to live sustainably, actually live, to, in, in fact, the word sustain means to bear the weight of, right? Mm. So really what we want is to live happily and joyfully and impactfully, right? In ways that don't harm others, right? So that's to live sustainably. So it means actually, it means to live a truly happy life. And then to have an impact, how does that connect to having an impact? Human beings are hardwired for meaning and purpose. Why is that? It's because, so meaning and purpose comes from helping other people. And it's not just like some pie in the sky thing. Evolutionarily, what human beings have in their advantage is they travel in packs. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have sharp teeth. They can't run very fast. When they hunt, they hunt together and they're smarter together than whatever they're trying to catch. Or they can build the shelter together, right? So human beings survive by being part of a community. That's how we grew up. So we get this nice feeling when we help others, because when we help others, it makes others want us to be part of the pack. So when we help others, it makes us feel like we're safe and we're okay. Like we're going to belong. We're going to be part of the community and taken care of, right? So making an impact is just about actually fulfilling that natural thing of actually truly helping others and being a good player. Yeah, so beautifully said. Thank you. So much so that I think I'm going to have to return my new power drill. <laughs> I'm definitely joking. Drill whatever hole you need to drill. And, and, then... and yeah, and then take it back. You are a genius. Another excellent piece of advice. I mean, here's the truth. It's the truth of the matter is, is that you would think once you buy a power drill, you'd never need another one again. But I believe there's research to show that households have two and three power drills. And the reason is because it's easier to go to the store and buy a new one than it is to find the one you already have, which is buried under junk in your basement or your garage. <laughs> this sounds about right. I think this evidence could be legit. I've seen it happen. But jokes aside, that is excellent advice. So thank you and wonderfully articulated. 
As I've mentioned, your work truly has inspired me over the years. Have you had anyone who has particularly inspired you throughout your life? And was there anyone who directly inspired you to strive for positive change? I know you mentioned briefly that your grandparents had been an inspiration to you. Sure. I mean, I have, there are so many inspirations. Some of them, of course, are, are cliches, like Mahatma Gandhi in particular, and Leo Tolstoy, uh, and Martin Luther King, and Desmond Tutu. But why they're inspirations to me in particular is that they believe in change through nonviolence, yeah. right? So to me, it's always been interesting. I didn't realize that at the time, but no impact means don't hit, don't hurt, no impact, right? So no impact man could also mean to me, nonviolent man. Yeah. We're in a time right now where there's so much anger and so much belief that, you know, there are different sides. And the truth of the matter is, is that most of us actually want the same thing. Our approaches may be different, but we need, you know, we need clean air, we need clean water, we need food. We, we want to be around our loved ones. We don't want to be around people we don't like. We want to get what we, are, what we desire. We don't want to lose what we desire. Like it's pretty much the same for all of us. And then somehow that's become a cultural war, you know, when actually we, at base, we want the same things. And my view is that there's no way for us to begin to ratchet things down if we are violent in our approach. And, you know, people will say, well, you have the, you're, I'm a white man. People will say, you have the privilege of saying, don't be violent. And that's true. Fair enough. You know, I am not traumatized to the same extent as other people by the society in which we live. And so I cannot be violent. And that's what I choose. I choose that. You know, I, I choose that approach because it's temperamentally correct to me, but also because it turns out that groups who choose a violent approach tend to be overwhelmed and destroyed by the oppressors. And groups that choose a nonviolent approach at least survive until change occurs. But also because I just believe that if I want to create a nonviolent world, if I want to create a fair, just world where everybody has dignity to pursue meaning and purpose, then I actually have to offer that in my Mm -hmm. attempts to change it. So I like Gandhi a lot. I like Leo Tolstoy, who was an anarchist Christian who believed that the, the basis of Christianity was resist not evil. That means don't do violence, right? And he was actually a mentor to Gandhi. So th- those are heroes to me. But then so many other people. I have, a, I have many Zen Buddhist teachers who are heroes to me. There's a Tibetan teacher named Lama Willa Miller. She's a hero to me. A, a rabbi named Steve Greenberg. He's a hero to me. People who have done work at the community level to improve their communities who are heroes to me. Yeah, p- people who are awake and use that awakeness to help others. Yeah, you've mentioned a lot of spiritual teachers there. And you'd said that since being a young child, you'd noticed that you were quite a spiritual person. Has that then continued to be a massive part of your journey? Well, since I was, let's see, it's for 24, more, yeah, about 24, 20, 25 years now, I've been practicing as a Zen Buddhist. I say that I I practice with Zen Buddhists. I don't necessarily call myself I am a Zen Buddhist mm-hmm. just like, because I, I I don't like us to separate ourselves because I think that you know it's all different paths up the mountain and so I don't like 
I am this or I am that. Because if somebody asks me if I'm a Christian, I'll say, sure, yes, yes. (laughs) You know, do you believe in Judaism? Yes, yes. You know, yes. At root, all of the spiritual traditions, all they're trying to do is create an understanding of ourselves as part of something bigger. That these thoughts that go through our head that tell us that we are alone and have to take care of ourselves and we have to hoard for ourselves. And if my neighbor has something, that means I can't have it. So I have to keep everything for myself. All the religions, all they really are trying to do is be like, that's not it. You know, who knows what it actually is, but that's not it. Mm -hmm. So do do that, which is good. And don't do that, which is bad. Mm, Definitely. And once again, very well said. Thank you. I've definitely been going deeper into my spiritual journey over the last few years or so. My background is in Vipassana meditation and my teacher for that was S.N. Gwenka. And there was a part of his teaching where he talks about religion that really stuck with me. He was saying that anyone from any religion is welcome to come and learn from his teachings in Vipassana, but his teachings are not religious. They are not exclusive to a particular religion because he believes that we are all the same at our core. Like you don't breathe Christianity, you don't breathe Judaism, you don't breathe Buddhism. As humans, we all just have the breath. Everyone is just human at their core and we are all wanting the same things. So any religion is welcome, but it is not needed to practice. Vipassana is open to everyone. So it's interesting your idea of saying I am and separating yourself. It's kind of similar to S.N. Gwenka's approach and the idea that at the end of the day, we are all human and we all share that same human breath. It had really struck me at the time. I felt really connected to how he articulated his thoughts in that particular teaching. And I love that you have said something similar. So you had brought up your No Impact year before, and it really is an incredible story that you shared. I remember reading an interesting article about your journey that was written during the same year by Penelope Green from the New York Times, and it was titled The Year with No Toilet Paper, which was amusing to me considering that's quite a humorous part of the book about how hung up people were about asking questions regarding the toilet paper situation. I think unfortunately this year as humans we've only further proven our very odd obsession (laughs) with toilet paper. I still don't get it. But I thought it was such a shame that anyone had focused on that section because having learned about your journey, I found that there were so many more interesting experiences and lessons that were learned from your no impact year. What were the most meaningful lessons to you that you learned? And do you think there are any misconceptions when it comes to living sustainably and what people think that involves? I think there still is this misconception that, like I said before, about living sustainably, which is that we should make ourselves miserable for the sake of the planet, as opposed to using our lives effectively, which is what I said, like Mm -hmm. using resources in ways that are truly effective to make ourselves and people happy. So progress, you know, this word progress, 
people sometimes think progress is to have better cell phones. You know, we're, everybody's talking about 5G now. So we're be able to watch even higher definition television on our walkie talkies, basically. <laughs> but I, I figure once we can see watch television at all on our walkie talkies, we can pause on the develop, further development of cell phones and maybe work on things like the million kids a year that die from drinking tainted water, you know, mm. like actually bringing fresh and clean water to people. So, so you would ask me, about like what feels important about no impact man about like the toilet paper first of all is this question of using this life that we have mm -hmm. these gifts of resources that we've been given in ways that actually improve our own lives and lives of others that to me is what means sustainable right not better cell phones anymore but clean drinking water for example you know that's one thing but things happen during no impact man for example I didn't use cars or even subways or buses. Of course, I like mass transit, but it was no impact, not medium impact. So I rode everywhere on a bike with my then year and a half year old daughter. And when we didn't have anything to do, we would go out and we would say, we're going to go see what happens. And we'd ride around on my bike. And we I happened to know a bike mechanic who had this dog named Scout. So sometimes we would stop there and play with Scout or whatever. And, and so sometimes we'd be in the apartment, actually, and I'd say to my daughter, what do you want to do? And she said, let's go see what happens. And we'd <laughs> go, that meant go on the bike and just ride wherever and see what happens. There was this way in which I discovered that when we slowed down and stopped using resources, that actually there was more joy in life. Like, we think that everything's about convenience. My favorite author is Kurt Vonnegut. And at one stage, he was getting ready to go to the post office to set mail some things. And his wife said to him, why don't you just get a fax machine? This is back <laughs> in the days where fax machines were a thing. And he said, well, if I got a fax machine, I wouldn't get to walk down the street and say hello to my neighbors. And I wouldn't get to flirt with the, he said, I wouldn't get to flirt with the woman at the post office. And then he said, the purpose of life is to futz around and don't ever forget it, right? So, you know, there's a way in which all this convenience and making things more efficient is actually kind of taking some of the joyful experiences out of life. Like how efficient is it to watch a sunset? Like is that <laughs> so there is just this big learning about the use of time and also a learning about the importance of community and connection. You know, that, that actually what we really want is connection. There's a really interesting television ad that I often mention it in the ad what happens is there's a, a dad and two kids. And the, the dad is playing with the two kids. They have a remote control car. And then suddenly the remote control car breaks, right? One of the wheels breaks. And the kids, the boys, all disappointed. And the dad's disappointed too because he bought this toy for the kid. So then in the commercial, the dad gets in his car and he puts the broken remote control car in the seat next to him. And then the kid moves the remote controls from outside the car. And the dad watches the what way the wheels are turning on the road and runs his car this way and that way, right? And and the kids are all happy and the dad's all happy. Basically, the idea is if you want to connect to your children, you should buy this car. <laughs> 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 but actually, if you want to connect to your children, you should just play with them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it has to do with time use. And it's a trick, you see, because so many 
like men in our culture, a lot of them feel like failures as fathers. And why do they feel like failures as fathers? Because they've been taught to emphasize all sorts of things other than fathership, especially career. Yeah. Right. So there's this yearning pain inside some men about their connection with their children. And so the ad like plays on that and says, don't worry, you can connect with your children by buying a car. And by the way, then you have to go to work more yeah. to pay for the car. So there's no impact man was about like coming to understand what actually makes life worth living. Mm. And that it's not that you, you can't surf without a surfboard. Surfing is a great thing, right? You can't. So we do need resources. You have to build a surfboard. But when it gets to the point where we think we to connect to our children, we have to buy a car. That's when things are kind of getting lopsided. Mm, I couldn't agree more. That's something that really struck me when reading No Impact Man of just how present you seem to be during that year. And I especially love to read about the connection you had with your daughter throughout that time as well. It was really beautiful. I absolutely love your What's Happening Now game and the idea of it. And another layer of presence was when you started to go to the farmer's market to buy seasonal food. You weren't going to the grocery store on autopilot and just putting the same things into your shopping cart. You were shopping mindfully and with intention. And another example could be when you were only using the stairs up to your apartment and not using the elevator. And by changing that habit, you'd be a lot more aware of how your body is feeling. Like, does this feel like effort today? How's my body moving today? I think you are absolutely right. Presence and connection is so important. And I think that is a misconception that comes up with sustainability because often people can focus on what they are missing out on. A year ago, I decided to become vegan. That was something I had chosen to do and I'd been further inspired to make that positive change by a really awesome non-profit organization called Start the Wave that I was fundraising for. And so many people had said to me, gosh, I don't know how you do that. You're missing out on this and you're missing out on that. But actually, when they talked to me about how I was finding it, I'd say that I've found that I've actually gained so much. I'm not asking anyone else to do it, but I personally feel so much better. I've been so much more present with food because I've had to think more about what I'm eating. I think previously I was just stuck in a pattern of eating the same foods and I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't even focusing on whether those foods actually made me feel good. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, thank you. It was people like yourself and the Start the Wave team that had inspired me to make that change. And I've gained so much because... It's so interesting that so often when I do have that discussion with someone who isn't maybe vegan or is a carnivore, they don't understand how I could have made that change as they think it would be so difficult to do. And that's because they're looking at what I had to give up. But I don't see it as giving anything up at all. Like I said, I actually think I've gained so much. So it's interesting to learn about different people's mindsets. And we were discussing before. I've personally learned so much from your journey in No Impact Man, and I think you were a trailblazer in many ways. 
it particularly made me smile when you were talking about how you were given free coffee at your local coffee shop because they were so amused by your reusable cup. My jar. There you go. (laughs) And that seems so novel now, thankfully, because that started to become almost the norm. In fact, it's often encouraged to bring a reusable cup now. But I appreciate your efforts at the time because it definitely seemed like you were going against the norm. However, the part of the book that really struck me was when your no-impact year had come to an end. You had achieved this massive goal that you'd set out to accomplish at the start. And it was quite an intense project. Your family had lived and changed in so many ways. And all of a sudden, it had come to an end. So I really appreciated your vulnerability in sharing your thoughts after that year because you'd literally been no impact man for a whole year. It had almost become like a persona and you were starting to ask yourself, how do I continue this life now without being a massive hypocrite if I don't keep all of these changes up? You were asking, how does one maintain that level of impact for the rest of their life? And I thought that was a really important question and also an important lesson in balance. How have you managed to find balance after the project? And do you have any simple starting tips for anyone who is perhaps considering living more sustainably? I mean, this takes us to an interesting place. So after No Impact Man was published, I got invited to speak all over the world. So first of all, in order to speak all over the world, I had to fly, right? So that's not no impact. <laughs> and my situation changed. Like I know, I really, I basically was no longer no impact man, meaning I wasn't living inside that project and I had to ask myself how I wanted to live. And then at the same time, when I was going around giving talks, so people were asking me a lot, like, how do I be no impact? And I would say, well, sometimes I would say, well, you can't because I'm no impact man. Like, you can't be... <laughs> Like, I'm me, and so you, the role is taken, but you should be, and No Impact Man is about me being like me, and so you should be like you, I would say, but be even more like you. Mm-hmm. Like, actually live, a, have the trust in your own values and truly live according to your values, which doesn't necessarily mean to be sustainable. Like, that's not, you know, the values which we prioritize, which a person prioritizes, may be helping old people. Mm. Maybe helping animals. Maybe, you know, there's all sorts of ways that people prioritize and we can't do all the things. So sometimes when people ask me, well, how do I do that? My question is first, what do you actually really and truly want to do? Like, because I did that does not mean you're supposed to do that. That led me to, to write my more recent book, which is called How to Be Alive. How to be alive begs those questions. Like it actually, what it does is it looks at what what actually it says. What actually makes us happy, and how do we use those building blocks? And what are ways where we can look at different areas of our lives and be careful? And then that, in turn, you know, when I wrote that book, because I'm in like in a whole different period of my life. What came out of that book is people started coming to me and asking me to help them individually to figure out how to live. That's how I started becoming a coach that I'd been on this multi-year examination in addition to various trainings and stuff like that. And now people come to me individually and in groups and they ask like, how do I accept this big question of how should I live my life? And then I help them to answer that for themselves. So 
it's interesting because I still, you know, obviously I still am part, very much a part of the environmental movement and I still do things to live sustainably and, you know, go on protests and be parts of collective action. But my mission has, has expanded, is what I want to say, expanded to helping other people have the in, kind of impact that they're supposed to have in the world. Yes, and I'm so glad that you brought up How to Be Alive, which is a guide to the kind of happiness that helps the world. And I think it's fair to say that everybody is on this life quest to find happiness. I'm sure it's a collective life goal if you asked people all over the world. I think for a lot of people, though, happiness can feel like it's hard to find, especially in current times when there is non-stop information from the world media and they often focus on stories of division and hardship. And I think that can create a lot of fear in people. How have you personally managed to find happiness and do you think it is possible to live a more balanced approach to living? Yeah. First of all, I think it's important to ask if happiness is actually the goal of life, you know. So if happiness was the goal, you know, I have a kid and, <laughs> and I love her, but having a child does not always make me happy. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not saying I'd take, put her, I wouldn't put her back in her mommy's tummy, but <laughs> but I love her and it gives me a deep sense of meaning and purpose. But, you know, some of my most joyful times have had to do with her, but some of the saddest times in my life have also had to do with her. And certainly I couldn't use happiness as a guide to parenting. Like what makes me happy, that's not a compass point that would help me figure out how to be a good parent. I mean, we all know that parenting is about the parents putting their needs second, right? So there's this question about what is the place of happiness. And so it turns out that the research shows that people are more giving and help the world more and are more healthy to be able to say that they're happy, right? I would argue that those are more purposes, like to be giving to the world, to be resilient in the face of difficulties, those types of things. So happiness is a certain state of being. And by the way, it's transient. People say, well, point of life isn't getting more stuff. You can't take that with you when you die. But by the way, can you take happiness with you when you die? We don't, we don't know, do we? So happiness is a transient thing. So what I like to say is it may be magnetic north, but it's not true north, mm. right? If you aim for happiness, you may go in generally the right direction, but as you get closer and closer, you'll be far from the actual goal. But it does give us a certain, happiness does give us a certain type of energy. It does make us able to help ourselves and help others. So that's the first thing to say. Also, happiness in some ways is elusive in the sense that if you aim for it, you can't find it, right? <laughs> so my own path has been more about finding equanimity in the face of happiness and unhappiness, yeah. like learning to enjoy the sunshine and the storm, or at least be at peace with the sunshine and the storm. And for me, that's been about, for me in particular, there are many paths towards that, but my path has been largely one of meditation and contemplation mm -hmm. or studying different types of spiritual literature, actually things that help me to have a true perspective on the arrival and the departure of happiness. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's kind of ironic because we're all on this pursuit of happiness. But like you say, the more we desperately go after something, the more it seems to elude us. 
And I also think life forces that balance upon us. It teaches us along the way that whilst we are trying to find happiness, there will always be unhappy and difficult experiences that we have to face. We can't avoid them. It's something that I actually felt on a very physical level when I was doing my Vipassana meditation. My journey started at a silent retreat for 10 days, which involves no talking and no eye contact. And partway through the retreat, the teachings had been talking about sankharas, which are like emotional impurities that are stored in the body as memory. You know, our body is a living thing. So it naturally has all of these sensations that arise throughout the day and That could be like a burning sensation or a tickling sensation. They are just natural sensations. They are neither good nor bad. However, we often then attach emotions to these sensations. We might decide that a burning sensation is bad and it means anger or guilt or feel a whooshing sensation and decide it feels good and exciting and we want to feel like that again. But I found that the more we focus our attention on these feelings and wish that they would just go away or stay forever, the bigger the feeling becomes. It's like its roots get deeper within us. So the sankhara becomes more embedded. So when you're at this retreat for 10 days of continuous meditation, you soon become so aware of all of the sensations that are arising in your body. And every sensation felt so magnified to me because that's where all of my focus was, right? I'd feel a burning sensation and be like, oh no, there's that terrible burning feeling again. I hope this goes away. This is awful. And then I'd panic and be like, oh no, I'm thinking about it too much. The Sankara is going to grow. (laughs) I could almost imagine its roots getting deeper. And that would then make it feel even bigger, which is quite amusing to look back on now (laughs) because I was having this massive panic on the inside. But on the outside, I probably just looked so quiet and peaceful. (laughs) But like you said, eventually, if you can calm yourself and just observe the sensations without labeling them and find that equanimity, the feeling does soon pass. And it's funny because it can definitely work both ways. As a few days later, we came to the final day of the retreat. And on the last day, about halfway through the day, they lift the rule of silence so that you can talk to people and share your experiences. Mm -hmm. And that morning, I'd suddenly gotten this overwhelming sensation again. And I thought, oh, no, here we go again. There's this big sensation and it's going to be awful. And it kept getting bigger and bigger the more I thought about it. But when I actually focused in on the sensation, it didn't feel like burning at all. It felt almost like a fluttering. (laughs) And then I realized I was actually just really excited. (laughs) I'd had such an intense experience for the past 10 days and I'd been so serious about the practice that I'd forgotten what excitement felt like. So yeah, the need for balance is really important and I really experienced that at such a physical level that the more we focus on a certain energy, the more overwhelming it becomes. 
whether that's an uncomfortable sensation like burning that we've decided feels awful and we want it to go away, or whether it's a light fluttering sensation that we've decided feels nice and we start to crave it and want it to stay forever. It's just not how life works. And it's actually that craving or repelling that creates unhappiness within us, you know? Mm. And the craving and wanting things to go away also never goes away. Exactly. It's that idea of the sankara. The roots are just going to get bigger and the feelings just going to keep growing the more we focus on it. Thank you for sharing that because I thought what you said about the need for balance is really important. And as well as being a very talented writer, you are also a speaker, consultant and activist. What do you hope your work contributes to the world? So I have a group that I run. I do individual coaching, then I have small peer coaching groups, and then I have a larger group of eight people that I run. It's called the Full Contact Group. And the reason why it's called Full Contact, the purpose is to help people to be in full contact with themselves mm -hmm. and in full contact with others. So to be in full contact with yourself and to be in full contact with others means that you can actually feel compassion for yourself and compassion for others, right? If you can feel what's going on, if you can be truly in contact with yourself, with this moment, with others, then you can navigate life. You can be awake to life in this moment and help yourself in all beings. If, you know, if, if my work's about anything, it's about wake up, wake up, like just wake up. It's not about, you know, whatever it is you're trying to get. It's not about that. Here we are, like you and me, Meg, here we are talking. It's about you and me talking, yeah. right? At this moment, the entire universe is focused on this point for you and me. And it's not about anything else but you and me talking. Wake up. And if you and I can wake up to this moment and actually respond appropriately to this moment, then as opposed to wait, when's that call on going to stop talking? I need a cup of tea, yeah. <laughs> you know, but actually be here in this moment. Then we continue to act truly appropriately and build lives that are good for ourselves and others. So my work is about helping people to be in full contact with themselves in this world. Yes. And what beautiful and important work it is. It's been so wonderful to witness how your community has grown over the years as you continue to push for positive change in the world and encourage people to connect more. What does the word community mean to you and how has your own community changed as you've continued to grow as a person? I suppose community means to commune. It means to come together as one, right? I have several communities. I mentioned that I'm in the recovery movement, so I have a community of people there, and I have a community mm -hmm. through my Zen practice, and I have a community through activism. But community means that we can do together what I can't do alone, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's that which I serve and that which serves me. You know, what's good for my community is good for me, and what's good for me is good for my community. And it gives me a sense of belonging and peace, and yeah. I love that. Beautifully said. And what has been some of the biggest things you've learned whilst growing your platform? And what is your favorite way of connecting with people? My favorite way of connecting with people is just talking to them. <laughs> really, I have an ambivalent relationship with social networking and the idea, even the idea of growing my platform. You know, I like talking. 
So No Impact Man sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It's been taught at many, many college campuses. For a long time, I ran a program called No Impact Week. All of that was great. And I, you know, of course, I love all of that. But all of it was action as at a distance. I couldn't really see. I had statistics to tell me things were happening, but I didn't, I couldn't see it and touch it. Yeah. That's why for this part of my life, I like this personal work, interpersonal work that I'm doing, you know, where I work with small groups and with organizations and with individuals because I can actually see the change. So my favorite way to connect is, you know, like we're connecting. Mm, I always love to be in discussion with people too. So I love that you came on the show today to connect with people in this way. Thank you. You really do seem to be so outgoing with your projects and you always seem to find innovative ways to reach people and inspire positive change. How would you personally like to see your work continue to develop in the future? Hmm. What I'm working on, I say what I'm working on in terms of my future work. So I have a a way of working in my coaching practice and in my groups that's based on, oh, another hero of mine that I never mentioned, which is a psychologist named Carl Rogers. And he is um, passe kind of these days. You know, now everybody, when they talk about psychology, they're all into neurobiology and stuff like that. But he basically believes that all organisms naturally grow. Now, that sounds kind of like woo-woo and whatnot, but the truth of the matter is he believes that biologically, if an organism is not currently frustrated, what it will do is grow its capacities in order to meet future frustrations. So it's, it's just science, right? That's what biological creatures do. But how it looks in a human being is that they're working towards actualization, right? Yeah. That human beings want to actualize. He believes that in the presence of a loving, transparent, truthful individual, like when we have a relationship with one or a group of people who exhibit those qualities, which basically means there's no frustration there because that person is permissive of who we are, that we will naturally grow. And that's the basic attitude that I bring towards my coaching practice. And so what I'm working on these days is that I, I'm going to grow and train more people in Rogers' techniques to run coaching groups and to run. My brand of coaching is sometimes people coach to help people accomplish things. And certainly I do that too. But more, my coaching is aimed at helping a person grow their capacities, which helps them mm -hmm. accomplish things, but it's more about their personal growth. So where my work is at the moment is about actually expanding my work. And I'm looking forward to being the coach and mentor to other coaches and mentors who run groups in the ways that I run them. And that could sound like a long way from no impact man, except that as I said, my belief is that when a person is in full contact with themselves and in full contact with the world, they can't help but treat themselves and the world compassionately. So they will naturally go forward and do well by themselves and by everybody else too. It's a revolution. Yeah. And to me, that's a beautiful sign of leadership as well and shows the great trust you have in your community to have this willingness to pass on your knowledge to others. Hmm. Except that, if you don't mind my saying it, it's not pass on my knowledge that right. I believe in. It's let me help you to develop your innate capacities. Mm -hmm. I don't pass anything on, actually. It's already there for the other person. Yeah, it's hard for me to believe I have something to pass on. 
except for a belief that you have something already inside you. That's a really powerful way to look at it. I like it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you. Now, this might be a simple question or it might be a very big question. What do you think we need more of in the world? An easy thing to say, I mean, there's lots of things we need more of in the world. We, we, need, we need more equitable distribution of wealth. We, we need more prioritization of things like health and education, all of that stuff. But everybody says those things. So what I'm going to say is we need more time. Mm. We need to be less busy. And the reason for that is, is because busyness is a kind of trauma all of its own. The inputs are coming too fast for us to deal with them. And when input comes too fast, we start to become scared. When we start to become scared, our function, our brain functions, the place of communication and cooperation and working together the way that I talked about, which is what humans are good at, is how Mm -hmm. humans survive, that's in the prefrontal cortex. And it's slow. It operates slowly. And then at the back of the brain, down at the base of the head, towards the neck, is the amygdala, what people call the lizard brain. It's where fight flight freeze reactions are right and what happens is when we get traumatized that part of our brain it's much faster it's less complicated it moves it pumps hormones into our bodies cortisol right adrenaline and it's much faster than our prefrontal cortex right yeah so when we are traumatized by busyness when we don't have enough time just to chill we naturally operate more from the lizard part of our brains And then we can't see the future. We can't plan for the future. We can't see what helps ourselves. We can't see what helps others. We just basically think either rawr or run, (laughs) right? Or hide, you know? Um, You should put that on the video clips. My acting out rawr. I will, with no context. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, So time, time is a thing. So to me, you know, 30 hour work week, four day work week, all of these things are, are actually really important. Another thing, which you know you have in the UK, which we don't have in the United States, I think that will help our societies to be able to turn themselves over to looking at an altruistic way of operating actually is universal healthcare. Yeah. You know, while we're all scrambling to make sure that we're going to be able to go to the doctor and we're so scared of losing our jobs, whether or not our jobs are moral or immoral, A person with three kids may not believe in working for a gun manufacturer, but what are they going to do about their kids' health care while their health care is tied to their employer, right? So how do we live an ethical, moral society without universal health care? Let's say time in universal health care. Yeah, it's a really important point. And having spent a lot of time in America, I've spoken to so many friends about this and have been shocked by how many people have said that the first thing they look for in a job is does it provide healthcare? And it made me realize even more how lucky I am to live in the UK and to have access to a service like the NHS, especially in the time we are currently in. Oh my goodness, what a blessing it is. And yeah, so many people out in the world are choosing jobs purely on access to healthcare. And they don't have the privilege of being able to first consider whether a job brings them joy or whether it fulfills them and utilizes their skills in the best way. So healthcare is so important. And yes, 
so is time. I think this year has really made us reflect on time. It's also been very telling of how we spend our time, I think. Certainly with a lot of people having to work from home or a lot of people have had their daily life slow down lately because we haven't had the same access to our usual hobbies or distractions. And I had a friend say to me the other day, do we really not do something due to lack of time or is it just not a priority for us right now? And I really appreciated their honesty because they'd realised they couldn't blame a lot of things on lack of time anymore as they'd been given so much more time and yet still they hadn't done certain things. I think part of it as well I mentioned it briefly before, is that we really are in this age of technology, which, like you said, in a lot of ways, we think we are advancing. Like, are we advancing getting 5G? Or is this actually taking up more of our time and energy? I personally have a really difficult relationship with social media, as I think it scares me in a lot of ways. It's something I found that can very quickly take up so much of your time and energy and brain power as well. There is just constant information coming at you, whether you like it or not. And I feel fortunate to have grown up during my early years in a time where information came to us much more slowly. You could find information in books or you could get news from the daily newspaper or there would be one time in the day where there would be an important news announcement. But now it's just constant. There's multiple news programs throughout the day. You get notifications sent as soon as there is a news update. And even if you want to avoid it entirely, it might pop up on a social media app. And it really does worry me how much that information is overloading our brains, like you said. Mm. It's a lot. So time and universal healthcare are very much needed in the world. I totally agree. Colin, it has genuinely been such a wonderful opportunity to connect with you today. And I'm so grateful for all of the positivity you put into the world. I would love for more people to be able to benefit from both your energy and your work. So how can people support and follow your work further? Yeah, so my webpage is colinbevan.com. My Instagram is at colinbevan. My Facebook page is colinbevan. The only tricky part is spelling colinbevan, so I'll spell it. It's C-O-L-I-N-B-E-A-V-A-N. Because people leave out letters or put letters in. So anyway. ColinBevan.com or at Colin Bevan. Wonderful. So as long as you are spelling it right, Colin is a very easy man to find. So thank you for sharing that knowledge. And I'm always recruiting for the coaching groups and or have a waiting list for coaching groups. So anytime people want to go there and just send me a message and say that they're interested. Excellent. And I was going to ask, do you have any upcoming events or projects that people should look out for? I have the two active waiting lists that are running. One of my full contact groups is full and just starting, so there's a waiting list for that. I have a couple of coaching spots for this year and also uh, one of my small peer coaching groups getting ready to start too. So 
any of those. I, I'm not very good at advertising <laughs> them all. I just kind of say, mention them on my email list and then people email me. And so go to my webpage, look and see what's there, but also people should just feel really free to inquire what's going on on my email by emailing me. There's contact at my uh, contact form on my webpage. Wonderful. And the email list sounds like a really good way to stay up to date. Thank you, Colin, for your time, energy and wisdom. You really have been so generous in what you've shared today. And before we say goodbye, do you have any parting words of advice that have served you well that you would like to share with the community? I say, you know, it comes up with my coaching clients a lot. <laughs> um, pause, pause, P-A-U-S-E, stop for a minute, just stop over and over again, just stop. See what's coming up for you, pause, see what's coming up for you. Hmm. It seems simple, but it's something we so easily forget. Yeah. Pause and stop. I love that. So to pause lets our functions go back from the lizard brain back to our prefrontal cortex, right? Pause, actually pay attention to what's going on around you, and then decide. Yeah, it's kind of like a reset in a way. Yeah, reset. Pause. Boom. Oh, Colin, you are awesome. I am so very grateful for everything you bring to the world. Thank you for leading with positivity. Thank you for continuing to show us how to better balance our work and lives. Thank you for your innovation. And thank you for being my kind of person. Ah, thank you very much, Meg. Thanks for talking to me. You are so very welcome. Now I better go and take back that power drill I bought. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of My Kind of People. I hope you felt the positive energy from this week's guest. If this episode was of value to you, then please rate, review and subscribe. It's so greatly appreciated. Thanks again.